Batman has a big long fight scene. We head to the world of Firefly and at last learn the truth about Shepard Book. And then we take a look at the earliest Doctor Who magazine comics featuring Matt Smith's 11th Doctor straight ahead. Welcome to the Classy Comics Podcast, where we search for the best comics in the universe. From Boise, Idaho, here is your host, Adam Graham. Well, we begin by returning to the world of Neil Gotham in Batman Beyond, Volume 3, The Long uh, Payback. And essentially, this follows up after the second volume with uh, uh, Bruce Wayne, you know, who... Obviously, since we're Neil Gotham in the future, and he's an old man, and he has been injured even more than before, so he can't even crawl into a bat suit. And Terry McGinnis, who's now Batman, back in the city with uh, the, Terry's brother Matt, uh, living at Wayne Manor. And uh, essentially, Terry and Dana, they decide they're going to go ahead and... Uh, and he's going to try and make a go of it with his high school girlfriend. However, while they're spending time together, the Royal Flush Gang attacks, and Bruce sends a robot to summon Terry at a very inopportune time to go ahead and deal with the Royal Flush Gang. And so Terry goes to fight the... uh, Royal Flush Gang, and he takes them down and, you know, essentially finishes that fight, and then he goes back to Dana, but uh, the Royal Flush Gang were there to, well, flush him out, and another uh, villain from uh, Batman Beyond, the Stalker, back to Dana's apartment, where the Stalker attacks, and in the course of the attack... Both Terry and Dana end up uh, falling out the window, though Dana manages to get away while Terry continues his fight uh, with the Stalker. And while this is going on, somebody randomly breaks into Wayne Manor, Matt runs upstairs, the person runs away, and it turns out that the person who broke in was the former Ten from the Royal Flush Gang. She was in an episode of Batman Beyond where she fell in love with Terry but was unable to get away from her life of crime. But also kind of wanted to be a good guy, apparently, even though she was burglarizing Wayne Manor. So she goes to help him with the actual villain of the piece. And this is kind of like, you know, one of those Russian uh, dolls, the babushka, where you open it up, it's like, the Royal Flush Gang's not the villain. Stalker's not really the villain. It is payback. But it's not the original payback. It's somebody else who's taken the mantle of payback, which is a common thing in the Batman Beyond universe, though they kind of go away where I don't really buy it that much. The big thing that happens in this is that Matt uh, decides to take on the role of Robin because Terry 
after three fights is in real trouble. Plus, the thing is that uh, Matt deciding to become Robin was telegraphed throughout the whole story. I mean, throughout the entire graphic novel, he's staring at Robin's stuff, at the Robin costume, and he's watched all of these training films for Robin. And it's clear that he wants to be Robin, but his brother being in deadly peril leads him to go out and do this. And this is probably the main thing that's accomplished. And Bruce Wayne is roundly criticized for him doing it or letting him doing it and for leading another young person down this path after all the tragedy that's happened. You know, that normal sort of criticism when they're going over the top on uh, Bruce Wayne. Overall, um, and this is six of the seven issues, I didn't care for this story. Um, it had some nice art and there were some good moments in the fight scene, but it was essentially a six issue fight scene that they managed to break up by changing from one villain to another, but none of the villains were particularly that interesting. And it felt like we may have had enough legitimate stuff for two and a half, three issues. And the stuff with uh, Matt becoming Robin could be interesting, but it did not need to be telegraphed through that many issues. I also thought that uh, they did too much of the TV continuity and bringing all of these characters in. It was like, pace yourself. Bringing in, you know, a character from a television story and writing a follow-up is fine. But trying to put all of these characters in, in quick uh, succession, slow down. Tell a story rather than giving us a bunch of continuity. There is a one-issue story in there called Gotham Games. And this one is set in the past a bit, uh, earlier in uh, Terry's uh, career. And uh, essentially, uh, what has happened is the defense grid has gone crazy. It needs to be deactivated. And Terry has got to get to these switches to deactivate it. And he's got to deal with people who don't trust him. Uh, One of them is uh, Shriek, who is taking up a bit of a heroic uh, mantle after being a villain in the TV series, and probably the most memorable-looking villain in the TV series, as well as someone else in Chinatown. And they end up teaming up with Terry. It has some moments where it's kind of hard to follow, but it was... It definitely moved at a better pace. Uh, the story was written by Bernard Chang, who uh, does a lot of the art on the other Batman Beyond issues, which is good. So this uh, story, Gotham Games, it's it's not bad, and it's better than the main story. But overall, I'm going to give the book Batman Beyond Volume 3, uh, The Long Payback, a rating of Not Classy. While I love the TV show, I don't like the whole continuity dump thing. And I hope we get um, future volumes that will tell more stories rather than just, a, you know, what we got in this one with so much of a prolonged fight scene. All right, well, now we're moving on to uh, a Serenity graphic novel. 
based on the series Firefly and the movie Serenity. And I'll warn spoilers for both of those uh, properties, so if you've been intending to watch them and haven't, uh, might want to do that before listening to this, as well as for the story The Shepherd's Tale. Now, for background, uh, you know, Serenity was a ship that was full of a lot of mercenaries. There were people on the run from... Uh, the Alliance, which were the government, uh, and then you had people who used to belong to the uh, independence uh, movement, including the captain, Mal Reynolds, and his first mate, Zoe. And in the midst of that, you have Shepard Book, who is a minister, uh, wears a clerical collar, and was invited on board by the ship's mechanic, Kaylee. The crew get into lots of shenanigans, often on the wrong side of the law, and uh, Shepard Book on occasion lends his assistance, and the type of assistance that he is able to offer, as well as some events that occur in the course of the series, hint at a very interesting backstory. However, it was never addressed during the TV series, which ended after 14 episodes, or in the follow-up movie Serenity, where uh, Shepard Book died. And this graphic novel is the answer of show creator Joss Whedon, as told by uh, his brother Zach. The book opens with uh, the Shepherd on the Haven uh, mining colony, where he went after he left uh, Serenity. And someone in the camp asked him how he uh, connected with uh, the crew. And he says that that's a difficult question to answer. He says, if you look at it, your life as a chain of events, each responsible for the next and caused by the last, where does any story begin? Could take you all the way back to my birth and before that the meeting of my parents or the meeting of theirs. And I love the questioner's response. I'm just asking how you met the guy. However, before the shepherd can answer the question, uh, they're attacked by the Alliance. And he mans the gun to defend them, uh, which, if you've seen the movie, you know, is a doomed effort. Uh, and you see him starting to bleed out. And the book begins to work backwards through his life. And it does something really different. Uh, because oftentimes, you know, you would have this opening framing scene and you would go back to the beginning of his life and, or the beginning of the story and you would see how things played out. Uh, but instead it goes, uh, in reverse chronological order. Uh, it examines a bit of his life on Serenity and the dis moments that led up to his uh, decision probably to leave. And then it takes us, you know, again, going backwards through uh, the moments that led up to his decision to uh, leave the mission where he's been trained and end up going on Serenity. And then goes even further back to when he was just down and out in this lost soul and made the decision to go to the mission. 
And there's this great sequence in there where he eats this bowl of chicken soup and it changes the direction of his life. Uh, it sounds odd, but it actually makes sense reading it. We go further back and discover that he was a high-ranking officer in the Alliance who made a decision that led to a uh, transport being captured by those who were foreign dependents and it leading to 4,000 people getting killed. And he's drummed out of the Alliance, kind of just summarily dismissed, uh, discharged, but without any trial, so they can kind of hush things up. And eventually we learn that the reason he joined the military was that he was actually an independence uh, fighter, and they wanted a mole on the inside. However, the Alliance monitored uh, transmissions going out, so they actually... Uh, replaced his eye with a fake eye, which would automatically transmit, but wouldn't be detected as coming from him. And in order to be able to do this, he had had trouble with the law and also been involved in the independence movement. So he needed uh, another identity. And in order to do that, he killed someone else and took their identity. And from there, it goes even further backwards. It's a really interesting way to tell the story, tell a story. Um, and it follows this idea that, uh, you know, kind of it's like, okay, well then why did this happen? You know, if he told us the previous story, we, we kind of have to follow, uh, the, uh, chain of cause and effect backwards. And it is really uh, a neat way to tell the story. Uh, now, there are some criticisms. Um, some people say that there's uh, not enough uh, background. This runs less than 50 pages long, and some people feel like, you know, this should have been more uh, fleshed out with more detailed adventures as to what went on. I, I don't think that's the case, because if you do that, you end up with a really long novel, and you have to create characters that people will care about and situations uh, with this war when we already know the outcome of it. And even if you do that, you're kind of missing the point of why the book was written, which is to help you understand uh, the background of Shepard Book. Some have questioned if his background was bad enough. Given that he killed somebody in order to get his current identity, I would say that is dark enough. You could certainly go darker, but I don't think it was necessary uh, in this story. I think that that's enough to haunt him with guilt, plus what happened with that Alliance transport, because you had 4,000 people killed, and many, uh, if not most of them, were not military or combatants at all. Others question or don't understand the uh, uh, journey he had to faith. They think, you know, th there ought to be more of a reason for this change that he made this shift rather than he sits down and eats a bowl of soup and goes off and decides to go off to this uh, mission. I actually think the book gives sufficient reason for the change in terms of establishing uh, things that had gone wrong in his life that he would have regret over in terms of exactly setting up a, a change to 
respond to that through faith, that's a decision where the causality uh, is often hard to explain. C.S. Lewis explained of his own uh, conversion to Christianity that when he one day that he was riding in a motorcycle sidecar and when he set out for the zoo in the sidecar, he wasn't a Christian. And by the time he got there, he'd been converted. And I think that actually with the soup story, it's, it's set up pretty well and makes a lot of sense. The, probably the only criticism that, uh, I, I could really see some validity to relates to the TV episode safe. In that episode, the shepherd has been pretty severely injured, and they arrive at an Alliance space station, and the Alliance just rushes to take care of him. And it's a very weird thing since they don't do that for normal space travelers. This indicated a very close or unique relationship with the Alliance. And I was bothered a bit by the idea that some officer who got summarily dismissed after a great blunder would be attended with such respect. However, I have less problem with it when I think about the fact that he was just summarily discharged rather than given any sort of uh, dishonorable mark. So due to his previous rank, it's possible that alone merited him receiving this uh, special treatment particularly if this is a situation where we're after the war and not even in the same sector as the disaster occurred. All the medical people know is that they've got to take care of this guy. In 40 plus pages, this gives us a good outline of the life of Shepherd Book, but it still leaves a lot of questions unanswered. But there are, uh, these are what I would call intelligent questions rather than dumb ones, as they invite thought and analysis rather than just information not being there that should. For example, uh, one thing after uh, Shepherd Book is thrown out of the Alliance, why doesn't he just return to the Browncoats? There are a couple answers that occur to me. Uh, the first may have been that he may have been just legitimately upset about the civilian lives that were lost and that the independence movement was willing to uh, kill in pursuit of its goal and also that he had been used to do that. The other possibility that occurs to me as I'm reading through the book is that we have a couple scenes with uh, the shepherd being very uh, gung-ho about his work in the Alliance. And it kind of made me wonder, did he hit a point where he kind of went native with the Alliance and really decided this was the side and he was part of the Alliance and he was achieving things there and obviously it had a level of success. I mean, given the nature of this, that it didn't feel, you know, weird or different from his uh, normal eye, you know, it's possible he could have forgotten the whole purpose of his mission as he got so involved in that. And I think these are intelligent questions. These aren't 
okay, what was that story even about? Uh, they're the type of questions that invite you to fill in the blank, but to fill in the blank with some idea of what uh, had happened. And I haven't talked about the art, but the art's by Chris Samney, and most of it is really, really good. Some of the distance uh, pictures are not uh, quite as good as I'd like, but I think he's got a very good style and uh, just a very strong book overall. So I will give uh, Serenity, The Shepherd's uh, Tale, a rating of classy. Now we turn to Doctor Who, The Child of Time. And this is Panini's uh, first collection of 11th Doctor comic strips. It's been a while since I did a review of the Doctor Who comic strips. Uh, generally, I've reviewed a lot of the Titan books, but only uh, one of the collections of the comic strips back when I took a look at Doctor Who Classics Volume 7. As a reminder, in each issue of Doctor Who magazine, there is a 10-page comic strip, almost always featuring the current Doctor. These are then periodically collected into books. When Panini reprints the Doctor Who comics, uh, unlike the Doctor Who classics, which IDW did, where they reprinted them in standard comic size, they actually reprint them at the same size as was used in the magazine, which means that the book is quite a bit... Stories in the modern era typically run between one and four issues long, although I've seen some stories from back in the 1990s and 2000 that ran up to eight issues long. In this particular volume, all the stories are written by Jonathan Morris and are the first comic stories written featuring uh, Matt Smith's 11th Doctor and his companion Amy Pond, uh, who was played on television by Karen Gillian. With that intro out of the way, let's go ahead and talk about the stories in here. First up is Super Nature, and in this one, the Doctor and Amy arrive on an Earth Empire planet, and they discover that all of the uh, colonists on this planet are convicts, because the thought is... The You send the convicts in case the planet is dangerous, which there is some logic to. But there has been a situation where a lot of the colonists have been disappearing, and these strange creatures have been appearing. And it turns out that the colonists are actually turning into these strange uh, chimera uh, people, and even Amy is partially turned into a butterfly. Uh, I like the art in this. It's really imaginative in uh, drawing these various uh, creatures and uh, really has a fun time. It's not a story that will blow you away. And the idea of everybody being convicts, uh, Morris doesn't really do a whole lot with. But still, this is a decent start for his uh, run on the 11th Doctor. Next up is Planet Bollywood, and what happens in this one is that the Doctor and Amy arrive uh, on a planet at the same time as alien invaders, and they find themselves being compelled to break into musical numbers, as is everyone else on the planet. 
Uh, and this is in the style of the, of a Bollywood uh, musical. I've never seen a Bollywood musical, but I get the feeling I would probably get more out of this if I had. But as it is, it's a fun story with a decent conclusion and uh, not a bad read. It's, and it's just a single issue, so it doesn't outstay its welcome. Next up, we get the Golden Ones. And the Doctor and Amy go to Japan to help out UNIT, an organization whose acronym has meant many things over the years. The third doctor back in the 1970s served as a scientific advisor for UNIT and occasionally goes back into uh, service with them. Uh, and in this case, uh, there is some weird stuff going on. There's this kids' TV show that is storming the nation. And the purpose of it, though, is uh, the show is called Garuda, is to sell a brain tonic. Uh, and they quickly discover that the brain tonic, uh, drinking it, actually allows an alien influence to take control of those who drink it. And the villains who are behind it turn out to be the Axons. Uh, the Axons, appropriately enough, were a third Doctor villain, which he uh, faced off against uh, when he was back at UNIT. Uh, this is a pretty good revisit. Uh, the accents uh, really look great. I think the art does them justice. Uh, I think in the 1970s when they appeared, uh, just the technology of the time didn't uh, make them look as uh, scary or as powerful as they were. The art in this book does a good job uh really uh, making up for that. Uh, we also do get to see uh, the uh, child of time, Chiok, who would also be in the background in a lot of the stories that they go to. Uh, the only thing in this um, that I kind of questioned was the decision to give Amy a pigtail. I don't think that that, you know, it wasn't a style she wore on television, and I don't think it's a style that particularly suits her. But other than this, this is solid. It's a good revisit of the Axons. But truth be told, you don't have to have seen the 1970s TV show to get it. You just know that it's a prior Doctor Who uh, monster uh, that you haven't seen. And it could have appeared even in a previous comic strip for all you know. Uh, but uh, in this story, I think it really uh, works, and they make a good, challenging villain. So I enjoyed this one. And then there's the Professor, the Queen, and the Bookshop, uh, in which Johnny, uh, Jonathan Morris decides for this 10-page story uh, to reimagine Doctor Who as a C.S. Lewis story. And this one... This one is okay. The art is a bit stylized uh, compared to other stories, but I think that's understandable. Uh, but the story uh, is fun. It has some uh, parallels to Narnia. Uh, but Morris himself even said in the conclusion that he wished that rather than, you know, piling on a bunch of Doctor Who monsters and Doctor Who continuity, that he'd instead really tried to imagine the type of story that Lewis might tell. But other than that, I, I think this was okay, particularly for 10 pages. 
Next up is the Screens of Death. And uh, in this one, uh, the Doctor and Amy have arrived in uh, 19th century Paris during the reign of Napoleon III. And the story actually opens with a woman being promised her operatic dreams will come true. They do come true, but she quickly has no time for her boyfriend. Uh, and uh, the boyfriend meets up with the doctor and Amy, and they notice some strange goings on, and they investigate. Uh, this one is really good. Uh, there's a lot of dark atmosphere and moodiness in it. The period costumes are pretty well drawn, and th this uh, works. There's a lot of creepy elements. It's a short story, uh, does not overstay its welcome, and uh, just a pretty well-done historical. Uh, next up is Do Not Go Into the Gentle Night. And uh, this is a, another uh, one-part, ten-page story where you have elderly people who are disappearing from a nursing nursery home and we learn in the course of the story that the director has been able to cover this up just because everyone there has no family the doctor and amy set out to find the truth and i do like the conclusion it uh, leaves some open questions and definitely has uh, emotional resonance and i think it's the best one parter in the book then we get a two-part story, Forever Dreaming, and uh, the doctor and Amy land on a beach, and uh, Amy has a weird flash, and the doctor realizes something and says they need to get off this uh, planet, uh, but he quickly turns into sand. And throughout the story, there is uh, a very psychedelic uh Vibe. Amy encounters these figures in black with umbrellas and just weird positioning of their faces uh, and is really uh, just has her back against the wall the whole story. And I'm not usually a fan of stylized art, but this here it works great because the story has just so many psychedelic elements that it really does fit. And it does have a very solid emotional conclusion. Uh, then we get to the penultimate story, which is Apotheosis. And uh, essentially, armed nuns from the church in uh the uh, Doctor Who series, where they've where the church, as it exists in the far future, has turned into a military thing with priests and nuns actually being in the military. Now, to be fair to Johnny Morris, that this idea was uh, come up with by uh, Stephen Moffat, and so he's just incorporating that. But that said, it's still a silly idea. While I could see a very a church, you know, deciding that militarization was the key to its future, uh, it's not uh, really plausible that you would send priests and nuns out into war. Uh, you would uh, maybe have uh, have one cleric or somebody influenced by a cleric leading an army. Uh, but the idea that uh, everybody is uh, going to be 
going by clerical titles is just silly. But it's not overdone silly in this one, so you can just put the blame on uh, Moffat for this. The Doctor discovers that there is a temporal field in this place which will cause uh, normal people to age uh, to death uh, if they uh, go through the temporal field. And his idea is to get away in the TARDIS. Unfortunately, this thing has uh, partially uh, swallowed and corrupted the TARDIS. And from there, it's a struggle with what he does to get away and what the uh, right thing to do is. Uh, this one is a, is a decent story. They have a good round, uh, running around adventure, and they set the stage for the final story in the book, the titular uh, Child of Time. In this, they've escaped from the perils of the... Uh, previous story, only to quickly discover that there's a larger in-game at work. Chiyoko had appeared in Apotheosis, which hinted at her big overall plan. Her design is pretty basic, but well done. Uh, she's drawn as a Japanese tween, but she has a creepy and menacing vibe about her. In fact, she's been appearing in kind of little cameos uh, since uh, the Golden Ones. And the first place the Doctor lands, he finds humans and a race of androids at war over the Earth. And the humans do not want the androids to end up taking the Earth, so they are ready to blow the thing up even if it kills them in the process. The Doctor tries to prevent the self-destruct, but he fails, and part one of the story ends with the Earth blowing up with the Doctor and Amy seemingly on it. However, in part two, they wake up in this really verdant area and run into a mathematician Alan Turing a genius who committed suicide in the 1950s. And then they run into the literary Bronte sisters, who are all carrying uh, assault weapons. And I absolutely love that uh, imagery. It's hilarious. But it works because both Turing and the Bronte sisters are androids, but they're more advanced and they have transcended this desire to make war and destroy the humans. And the Doctor's going to need their help in his efforts to stop Chioko. I won't give away more of the story because it is a complicated but not convoluted uh, st uh, story in the Doctor Who timey-wimey tradition. But it's a lot of fun to read. Uh, and in addition to the stories... Uh, you also get, and this is true of all of the Panini comics, a collection of Doctor Who uh, comics, is that they, uh, whenever possible, uh, get in touch with the writers, the editors, and the artist who worked on it, and get them to take some time and write down, you know, what happened during the production, and... Uh, what happened with the process. 
And I think this book has the longest section like that. And you get to learn basic stuff about what influenced some of the creative decisions, what inspired them to write it. And the behind-the-scenes process on this one is particularly interesting uh, because Jonathan Morris, the writer, had very different ideas. He wanted to do just uh, 10-page stories, single, one-and-done stories. And he thought the idea of doing a story arc like they do on television uh, would not be a good idea. It had worked during the previous run with uh, David Tennant's Doctor when there had just been Doctor Who specials and had not been a regular Doctor Who series uh, for a good space of time. And so essentially you got a season uh, where you're just in the comics, where you're not messing with anything that's going on on television. However, if you try to run a story, a long story arc, uh, you know, you might run into problems with the television series. And that did turn out to be the case. Uh, somewhat hurt by uh, Morris's idea that if he was going to write this sort of story, he wanted to give fans kind of an amplification of what they were getting on television. So he decided to set out to write the sort of stories that the then showrunner Stephen Moffat would write. Unfortunately, he did those, came up with ideas that were so close to things that Moffat had immediate plans to do that when they sent the uh, story ideas into uh, Cardiff, the Doctor Who television team would tell them, we're planning to do something similar, you have to scrap the whole thing. So there was a lot of extra work and back and forth involved in this volume, and if you find that part fascinating, this book's even better. But uh, even if you just want the comics, I absolutely love the creativity in this book. I don't think every story was great, But there was not a bad one in the bunch, and they really take advantage of the comics uh, format to tell stories that may be harder to tell on television for Doctor Who, and just to really uh, take that, uh, but are still in the spirit of the series. I have to admit that I did uh, particularly enjoy the art in this. Mostly, they were pretty close to... Uh, capturing the uh, Doctor and Amy. Uh, not perfect, but pretty close. However, sometimes they used a surreal style or some other stylized way of drawing uh, them, but it was never without a reason. It was either realistic or it's not realistic, it's stylized, but there's a reason for it. So overall, I'll give this one a rating of classy. It's a creative collection of comic strips that shows how good uh, Doctor Who can be and takes full advantage of its format. The other stories, uh, we give Batman Beyond, Volume 3, The Long Payback, a rating of not classy. It's a padded out story, in many ways reads like an extended fight scene. And it kind of feels like Batman's journey is a bit stalled in it. We give Serenity, The Shepherd's Tale, a rating of classy. 
It's an artistic and writing triumph that gives us some really good insights into a character whose development was cut short by the nature of Firefly's untimely demise. And and once again, Doctor Who, the child of time, gets a rating of classy. All right, well, that will do it for now. If you do have a comment, email it to me, classycomicsguy at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at ClassyComicsGuy, and be sure and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.